This is a WTOP original podcast. From Podcast One. Coming up in this episode of Target USA. The U.S. debacle in Afghanistan. It's reverberating all around the world and no louder than in NATO countries. The end is a disaster, use this term. I think this is the, certainly the way it's seen everywhere uh, by our, our adversaries, uh, whether it be uh, great power adversaries, whether it be terrorist groups um, in our societies. We take you to the Lennart Mary conference in Tallinn, Estonia, where for three days, policymakers, politicians, military personnel, and academia intelligence leaders from all around the world and especially NATO countries, we're all fixated on one thing. What happened in Afghanistan? And can the U.S. be counted on in the future? Coming up on this episode of Target USA. The National Security Podcast. From WTOP in Washington, D.C., this is Target USA. Russia could render huge harm to this country. North Korea's secret missile capable of reaching the whole of the United States. Dangerous terrorist. D.C. is repeatedly mentioned as someplace they would like to seek an attack. Cyber criminals. Decryption successful. America has a target on its back. And on this program, we investigate the threats, the people behind them, the agencies fighting them, and the impact on you. This is Target USA, the National Security Podcast. I'm J.J. Green. What exactly was the Biden administration thinking during the Afghanistan evacuation? Policymakers, analysts, politicians, military personnel, and academia from around the world gathered in Tallinn, Estonia, for a three-day conference, September 3rd through the 6th, that was dominated by that very question. At some point in each of 21 official discussion sessions at the Lennart Mary Conference, the impact of the U.S.-led withdrawal of NATO troops in Afghanistan was mentioned. In some cases, the U.S. was bitterly criticized. There was a panel discussion. It was entitled, NATO, One for All, All for One. I happen to have been invited to participate in that conversation. And on this program, we do something a bit unusual. We bring you the full content of this 90-minute but very interesting conversation. The panel moderator was Jana Puglierian, a senior policy fellow and the head of the Berlin Office of the European Council on Foreign Relations. I'll briefly introduce my distinguished panel. Um, I do it in alphabetical order, and I start with uh, the general, General uh, Raimund Andrajczak, Chief of the General Staff of the Polish Armed Forces, and I hope I pronounced that correctly. Um, Next uh, to me is Assistant Secretary General for Public Diplomacy of NATO, Ambassador Baiba Braže. Good to be here. On my very left is Philippe Herrera. He is Director General for Political and Security Affairs, Ministry for Europe and Foreign Affairs of France. And to my very right is JJ Green, coming to us from the United States. He is a national security correspondent with a WTOP radio station. So welcome, everybody, and thank you very much for making it. 
Um, we start this panel with short introductory remarks. I would like to give every participant the opportunity to reflect on one of the questions that was outlined um, in the panel description. What kind of alliance do we need in the coming decade? Because I think um, it is quite clear that since the last strategic concept was written in 2010, where Russia was considered a partner and China uh, wasn't even mentioned, we've moved on quite a bit. We are at the beginning of uh, a process to, to write the new strategic uh, concept for a new NATO. And I think uh, since the last one was written, a lot has happened, not only vis-a-vis -vis China and Russia. NATO, NATO was declared brain dead by some. Um, others declared, or others were, I think, an inch short of leaving um, NATO. Um, we have entered an era of great power competition and just ended a military intervention in Afghanistan with what I would call a pretty disastrous withdrawal um, with maybe a little coordination among allies. So looking at this overall picture, um, so what do you think are the big strategic decisions when it comes to um, NATO's new strategic concept, the direction NATO should take? How should NATO adapt? How should it reinvent itself? Or is it even necessary to reinvent itself? What can we keep? And what fundamental trends do you see um, that one needs to respond to? And I start with the general and ask you to keep it concise and... Thank you very much indeed. Sharp and brief. <laughs> short or sharp? <laughs> short and sharp. Okay, ladies and gentlemen, uh, the big pleasure in order for me to be here uh, because the timing and because the location. Thank you. Uh, we are in the Tallinn, which is the most forward position of the eastern flank facing eastern direction. So we have a plan of discussion with the General Horum, uh, which is my counterpart, Chief of Defense and Southern Armed Forces, about the military solutions for the problem. And it's a very important location here. We are in the eastern flank. So whatever we say, whatever we, uh, we act, it's uh, is important. Um, and the timing is also uh, very important. I was asking myself, what, what does it mean once we're exercising uh, past and uh, once we're exercising today and, and the future? So past, it means bipolar, easy, black and white, zero, one word. Soviet Union and the United States for a pretty long time. NATO, 70 years old institution. That's the, that's the context. And then the last 20 years, uh, you know, fighting terrorism uh, with the spectacular you know, situation we see in the headlines couple of days. That's the today. And, uh, and how about the future? So without proper understanding uh, what will really happen last 70 years or 20 years or 10 years and significant decisive points will be uh, very risky to say how we see the future. From my perspective, uh, being in the chief of defense Polish, Polish armed forces, sitting in my chair when I'm looking in a map, uh, it's uh, it's a very national-oriented uh, thoughts. And also looking in the region, starting from Estonia, Latvia, Lithuania, down to the Black Sea through the Carpathian Line, Romania. But in the same time, we have a situation in Afghanistan. Uh, we have a situation in the Belarusian-Polish border and respective countries, Latvia and Lithuania. So today's crisis. And we have uh, Zapad exercise, the huge, uh, message using military instruments of power by Russia 
And that's, that's the today, and probably this is a start point for today's discussion. From, from my perspective, 70 years, 20 years, Tallinn here, Estonia, and uh, the three points on the, on the globe right now, that's the today, and that's the, the biggest point of our you know, uh, discussion today. Thank you. Okay, thank you. That was very concise and quick and sharp. I hope sharper. <laughs> Fiverr, you're next. So what should we think of when we think of the future of NATO? I think uh, first let me thank our Estonian hosts and uh, both in terms of organizing the actual conference in person, but also for being such a committed ally. Uh, it's not only about 2% plus defense spending, but also your everyday contribution to NATO's debates, to military, to hybrid understanding, to cyber, to, to everything that you do. Thank you. It's important for NATO, it's important for the alliance, it's important for the region and for each and every one of us. And through that also, we clearly see that that is what NATO is about. In the NAC room, as Philip will remember, we have another Latin saying that I don't see in the program today which is animus in consulendo liber, which I think French will have quite a number of translations for that, but when I interpret it in my personal capacity, it means that the spirit of consultation through a free discussion lives on, and this is what NATO is about. You have that exchange, that understanding, you develop common perception and assessment of threats, on the basis of the, four, of the values and what NATO is about. It's just 14 articles in the NATO treaty. As the Omaha uh, congressman said, it's even the milkman should understand it. And it has changed, NATO has changed. When you read through 1948, 1949, when NATO was established, it was actually to deter Germany. It was not against Soviet Union as some have stated. It was entirely different uh, purpose of the alliance. And through crisis, through this free consultation, through the open exchange and developing the common understanding of threats and action, how to deter and defend if necessary, whether it's Suez or whether it's Western Berlin and the wall, or certain individuals in offices. It's, it's how alliance has moved ahead. And we will move ahead. Of course we are reeling from Afghanistan. But let me remind you, we shouldn't be surprised of the decision that was taken. We should have listened to the American leaders. They, they clearly indicated where they stood. The, of course, and it was a training alliance. It was not a crisis management or anti-terrorism operation for NATO. It was a training exercise at the end. It was a training mission. And the fact that allies were able to evacuate so many Afghans, so many of our people, and the way how we saw that commitment also shows we can deliver. Like we saw during this COVID crisis where the military delivered for the civilians, for the medics, and for all of us. So this is what NATO is about. It's not only about allies together, among 30, but it's also civilian military cooperation, it's political military alliance, and I have no doubt we will go through crisis and crisis for the future, and we will fill the core tasks with a new meaning for the strategic concept. We, will in, we are starting literally in the NAC, and we will reach out to the 
uh, both establishments, the private sector to military to, to uh, formulate the strategic concept where 30 heads of government and, and state of government can agree. Thank you, Vaiba. Over to Philippe. Philippe, France has a special interest, I get, uh, I think, in um, getting this right, since, um, I mean, we need to overcome NATO's um, brain debt. Um, so, from a French perspective, what would be priorities when you uh, look at the process ahead of us and the renewal of yeah, NATO's tasks? Thank you very much, Jana. And like Vaiba, let me say, uh, how glad I am to be here, not only in the conference, not only in Tallinn, but in this gathering for reasons that I think the Estonian president made clear in a very powerful, and I found on a personal basis, very moving way last night in, in, in her speech. I think I would agree with, what much, with much of what has been said, but I, I would take a step slightly back. First, in terms of looking, if we want to look forward for the next 10 years, which is what we'll need to decide on in the next strategic concept, um, we can't focus only on what's happened in the last 10 or 20 days and Afghanistan. We'll come back to it, I'm sure, but uh, need to look at what's happened in the last 10 years. Uh, and second, I think that uh, NATO is not operating in a vacuum, nor should it operate in a vacuum. And that's why we, this is the subject of the panel, and discuss what NATO should do. But NATO is, is, is first and foremost the, the countries that make it up and the political will they have to operate together. And, and I think that's the way we would look at it from a, from a French perspective. So I would say very, very simply, uh, and trying to keep in the, the limited time you ask us to work in at the beginning. Um, if we look at the key changes over the last 10 years, uh, I would just mention five of them, and I think it's from these that we need to go to how we will best address them. First, uh, obviously, and this is uh, uh, maybe the last six or seven years uh, where it's been the most clear, Russia as a destabilizing force uh, uh, on the European continent. Second, I would say the increasing saliency of uh, new domains of conflict or new domains that are used for conflict, uh, such as cyber, such as space, uh, and which are more tricky to articulate uh, with uh, traditional NATO uh, missions and, and, and means, but which we can't ignore. Third, the persistence and the risk of resurgence uh, of terrorism and of a terrorist threat on our homelands. Uh, Afghanistan has some bearing on this, but we should not forget what is happening in, in Iraq and Syria and, and for Daesh uh, more broadly. And then the two last ones I would mention, uh, and which I imagine will, will be a subject of discussion and perhaps a debate or contention, are not, don't have to do with uh, um, what's happening uh, outside of NATO, but with um, uh, what's happening uh, inside NATO. And one I think is a, a what I believe to be uh, the confirmation of a lasting shift of the United States' posture away from exposure and military exposure and intervention from areas that are not considered fundamental to US strategic security interests. And many of these areas, especially on our eastern border, are fundamental to European security and strategic interests. So the question is, how do we uh, reconcile this, what I think is a long-term shift that does not date from the Biden administration nor the Trump administration, with, uh, with uh, the need to keep NATO uh, vibrant? And second, I will not say this is a shift, but we have seen, at least during the Trump administration, that uh, the US commitment to allies, to alliances, and to security guarantees is not necessarily a given. Mm -hmm. 
And therefore, how do we live with this reality without, it, without comforting this trend uh, deep in the US body politic in, in some areas, which I think would not be in our interest, but also uh, without, um, without uh, uh, ignoring it. And I think the, the other element that we need to deal with uh, is precisely, as Baiba put it very, very clearly, uh, the need to be able to have substantive debates and to be able to reconcile cohesion and unity in execution, cohesion and unity in the way we are perceived by our adversaries, our competitors, and our partners, with the need to have uh, deep debate even when the issues are uncomfortable. And this is what uh, President Macron referred to when he mentioned, uh, when he used the terms that were very problematic in terms of the reaction uh, that were seen as problematic, uh, uh, brain dead. We have fundamental shifts. Uh, we cannot just sweep the elephant under the rug. Otherwise, there comes a point where you can't walk in the room anymore. And I think what we've been able to do effectively with uh, uh, the, 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 the experts group, uh, the proposals put forward at the summit, working toward the strategic concept, is reconcile this need to, uh, to, to have the hard debates, the difficult debates, uh, uh, and reinforce, uh, reinforce our unity. You mentioned China. I think China is clearly one of, if not the most, uh, uh, um, uh, the strongest changes in our strategic, uh, or in the international environment. I don't think that it can be handled, or it should be handled, in the same way as other uh, threats uh, or challenges in, in our vicinity, because it is, it, it is not yet a, a military threat to the Euro-Atlantic area, and therefore NATO cannot have the same, uh, uh, the same approach to it. I do think that uh, NATO can and should be used as a, a transatlantic security forum for situational awareness to better understand the impact of China's uh, evolving posture on our security. But the truth is that the bulk of the tools that China uses to try to divide us, to weigh on us, to intimidate us, at this stage for Europe are less military than having to do with the, the, the instrumentalization or the, the weaponization of, of um, economic and technological uh, interdependence. We come to that also later in the yeah. discussion. We have a deep dive um, into the China issue um, later. Thank you very much, Philippe. JJ, you've already heard some remarks uh, about the United States, but from kind of your American perspective and what you observe, um, how is the NATO debate in your country unfolding? And I hope everybody hears me now. There were some issues. So if you don't make yourself, I don't know, visible and complain <laughs> to the organizers, not to me. <laughs> well, thank you again for the opportunity to be here. Um, as someone who's been privileged to be a witness to history, um, I can say that change is inevitable. Um, and from a journalistic point of view, I want to say that change may be inevitable, but the way we respond is not. And I think where NATO is at this point, it's, it's at a moment of change. And I want to just relate a quick story, being that witness to history, because talking to you as a journalist with this distinguished panel, um, it's imperative that I speak from a journalist perspective. It was just about 20 years ago that I was standing on the roof of the Voice of America building, watching the Pentagon burn. In the distance, I could see the smoke rising. Just across the street from the VOA building, not more than 100 yards away was the US Capitol, which we later learned that day 
was supposed to be the fourth target of those hijackers. Brave people gave their lives so that wouldn't happen. Um, later that day, I was able to walk down one of the busiest streets in Washington, the middle of the street, Independence Avenue in September. Everybody's back from vacation, Congress is in session, people visiting. I mean, it's a very busy day. Independence Avenue was a ghost town. The only vehicles there were military vehicles uh, and there were military people with guard dogs watching. Um, there was, the images of people dying that day were horrific. Um, that day as well, there was a lot of despair in America. The only safe place in America that day was in the air. And there was only one plane in the air that day after those four planes crashed, and that was Air Force One for eight hours. There was only one plane in the sky because that was the safest place in America. As that day unfolded and the events of the next few months unfolded, Afghanistan happened. A few months after that, the world community, NATO, was there for the US. NATO was there on 9-11 because shortly after it happened, there was a very clear understanding made to the US that Article 5 would apply. NATO was there. Being embedded in Afghanistan with the military over a period of years for three times, I've seen the Polish, I've seen the, the British, I've seen the Germans, I've seen the entire NATO family at work in Afghanistan. And I can say to you, being again that witness to history, there was no greater form of solidarity to me than that, coming to the aid of a member in that way. The US was on its knees on 9-11. It was NATO that extended the hand to help the US stand up. Never in my lifetime did I think I would, again, as this witness, witness what took place a couple of weeks ago. We thought the Taliban were done. We thought that whole process was finished as it relates to Afghanistan. We thought a government would be stood up. We thought Afghanistan would stand on its own. That wasn't the case. Perhaps it was never meant to be. But NATO was there at the very end. When the US left, US troops left, NATO was still there. NATO is still there today. In my opinion, Afghanistan is going to change everything. How things happen, how cooperation takes place, the politics of it, the importance of it, the threats as a result of Afghanistan that were exposed, some that we knew about, some that we didn't expect. As a journalist and as a witness to history, the way it's been handled has been something to behold. From inside the United States, there's been a lot of concern about why certain steps were taken and why certain steps were not taken. Again, change is inevitable, but the way it's handled is not. 
And this is the thing from a journalistic point of view that I think is going to be with us for quite a while. JJ, How may I interrupt you? And we stay with Afghanistan. We stay with the topic. It's the first topic I wanted to dive a bit uh, deeper in. Um, but I want to ask you concretely, because you made me think when you said Afghanistan changes everything. So my concrete question before you continue would be, does it change American security and defense policy? Does it change um, America's engagement also with allies? Wow. I had this all scripted. And I had a big <laughs> dramatic finish. So I will just put that aside and answer your question. <laughs> yes. <laughs> but more specifically, I think we are interested in the details, yes, yes. especially as Europeans. Yes, more specifically, the U.S. has some work to do internally. I mean, I think that has been pretty clearly broadcast in the last couple of weeks. I don't think it's going to be easy work because I, I don't do politics. I just stick with national security, foreign policy, policy issues, but not the political sphere. But I do have to watch it to understand how to interpret what's taking place. There is another situation that's unfolding in Washington where there is stress, there is strife. The Biden administration has been under significant pressure, both from Democrats and from Republicans, and from the public as well, who don't understand. I have several friends that I made in Afghanistan who have been calling me every day, help me get out. Tell your government to help me get out. Tell whoever you can to help me get out. I've communicated to the degree that I'm able to those concerns to folks that I know in the government, not trying to get involved in that. I think they have a very fundamental problem that it's going to require some change, Jana. And where that change comes, whether it's in who does what, who listens to who, who says what, who has the power, I think those are some of the changes that may be coming very soon. Okay, but coming back to the ally question, there was a lot of criticism amongst allies that the United States did not consult enough. Um, the Trump administration did not consult, the Europeans basically didn't expect anything else. But when Biden um, came into office, I think with the announcement America was back, we thought also, yeah, back to its commitment to work with allies. And would you say, as a journalist, and last question to you, then I open it up to the others, that um, there were mistakes made when it comes to um, consulting with allies? Uh, do you think the US could have done better? Or do you think, as Baiba has said in the very beginning, we, Europeans, should also have, we, we should have expected this to happen. And it's maybe, I mean, you didn't say that, but it's maybe a bit lame now from us to complain and to put all the blame on the Americans. So what do you think? I certainly think it could have been communicated better, what they were planning, what they were doing, and explained better. Now, whether or not it could have been managed or done differently, because we heard the president say several times that this was going to be messy, regardless of when it happened and how, uh, who was involved. But some disagree, and the allies have, I think, every single right to be upset and angry about it because that's what NATO's about. It's a, it's, it's a team, it's a family. And it wasn't clear that that was 
the way in which this was handled. Um, feeling blindsided, I've heard that from a few folks from the Allied community. And just as a journalist, again, I don't want to inject myself into this as some all-knowing figure who can speak to policy and et cetera. I'm just telling you what I, as a witness of t to history, have heard and seen. The Allies are upset. They should be, and there are reasons why. There were mistakes made, but the biggest one, in my opinion, is the way in which things are communicated. I don't think that I don't think the administration itself realized until very late in the process that that was something that should have been done a lot better from the very beginning. Thank what you. was happening and how? Thank you. Maybe um, I come to you, Baiba, because you have been witnessing the discussions also inside NATO amongst allies, maybe mumbling in the corridors about what the Americans did, right or wrong. So what is your perception now? What is basically NATO's main takeaway from this Afghanistan mission past 20 years, but especially also this withdrawal and how it was made? Is there a lasting damage? I mean, there, will, there is already, we have started the lessons learned process and there will be things that worked, that didn't work and that we can fix or maybe not. So in that respect, it really does not make sense to put blame on one or the other or, or, or third party. Um, uh, we do have to draw lessons nationally and as the alliance, which we will do. Then the next step, of course, is to remember that the alliance has its three core tasks. Deterrence, defense, crisis management, cooperative security. And those tasks remain as relevant as ever. And as Philip rightly said, of course, the new domains of contention, the new domains that also NATO has recognized as operational domains, be it cyber or space, introduce, and the tech introduces entirely new meaning into what defense deterrence in the future is and will be. And I'm sure General can, can come in with his thoughts about that. And the challenge, uh, again, whether it's uh, a certain perception of China and what China is doing in terms of not only the tech development and its, its uh, treatment of people's data or privacy, but also the actual military capabilities that is developing from, from, uh, missile, from missiles, from nuclear to, to uh, conventional to sea capabilities. Uh, Navy, everything is there. And we need to understand what does it mean for the 30 allies. And that's why we have also invited China to a dialogue. Uh, today there is a weapons of mass destruction conference ongoing in Copenhagen. China is not there. And we need China to engage. We need China to be also part of that sort of, if not dialogues, and at least exchange of information to, to understand. Because otherwise, uh, without that, of course, we will conclude certain things that we conclude. And, and if uh, that brings more stability or security, that's you know, the, the next step. But again, uh, Afghanistan, yes, we are all reeling from it. There has to be a rational lessons learned process. And we will do that. We all had scenarios in place. Why you know, certain, certain scenarios worked, didn't work? That's an expression. So, it's a rational, both military political process, but the alliance as, uh, uh, with its three core tasks there and the deterrence and defense as its first one, as we also see from uh, NATO's presence in Estonia, 
in Latvia, in Poland, in Lithuania, in the south. It's there. It's efficient. Can I, can I come back to the three core tasks enshrined in the 2010 strategic concept? I'm wondering about the future of crisis management, honestly. I mean, you said the end of Afghanistan after 2015 is not a crisis management operation, but a training operation. But still, I mean, is there not intervention fatigue within NATO, deeply widespread uh, amongst European and American allies? And is Maybe I ask you just straightforward, do you think that NATO will engage in any sort of Afghanistan-style military mission in the near to distant future? Is there any appetite? You wouldn't want me to speculate, would you? <laughs> I mean, the, the truth is, again, also about Afghanistan, 9-11, as JJ said, it was a very clear commitment, Article 5. Allies went in together. It was a very clear operation of not allowing threats against the allies to be launched from Afghanistan territory. It was achieved. There hasn't been attacks from Afghanistan territory. Of course, I mean, at the height of uh, our presence, we had more than 150,000. General Allen was commanding ISAF. It was 150,000 military there. Now, uh, as a training mission, we had less than 12,000. And it was a proper training mission. Yes, we were investing a lot and we were in it together and we have changed Afghanistan. 20 years of presence has allowed the whole generation of Afghans to grow up in peace. How can that not change the country? So for the future, the way how Afghanistan will be run, what relationship will be, it's again, it would be a speculation now to, to sort of imagine, but there will be certain requirements that the allies will, will expect uh, Thank you. from so whatever rulers they are. So you think that crisis management will remain one of the three core tasks? Um, and I it, it cannot not remain because again, we saw during the COVID that the allied military was one of the main responders. So maybe, um, Coming to you, um, Philippe, what are the French lessons looking at Afghanistan first when it comes to basically NATO as a, a crisis management actor, um, but also coming back to the training aspect? I mean, looking at the result in Afghanistan, that training mission wasn't really uh, successful, I would say. I mean, um, I don't know if it was the right strategy to train and equip Afghan soldiers after what we've seen um, recently. Oh, maybe it was. Um, you, you tell me um, whether it was and whether just how we did it uh, was wrong. But because something obviously um, went wrong. So what are the French lessons looking at basically um, this? But maybe you want also comment on um, JJ's remarks about the United States and being a Kind of, that there was a lack of consultation process, maybe? Sure. So first, um, I will try. It's difficult. I'm French. But I will try to do this with a great deal of humility. <laughs> <laughs> first of all, uh, because I, I don't think we should judge our action over the last 20 years over what's happened in the last 20 mm -hmm. days. Uh, the end is a disaster, you use this term. I think this is the, certainly the way it's seen everywhere by our, our adversaries, uh, whether it be uh, great power adversaries, whether it be terrorist groups um, in our societies. But if you start moving back, when did we individually or collectively take the wrong turn? I think it's very difficult to say. 
Was it in February 2020 when uh, the U.S. made this agreement as opposed to another one uh, with uh, the Taliban? Was it back in 2006-2007 when we decided uh, as NATO to extend the area of responsibility uh, beyond Kabul? Was it uh, when we decided to move from more counterinsurgency to, to counterterrorism? And retrospectively, uh, there is a, sometimes a temptation to conflate solidarity counterterrorism coming to NATO coming to the assistance uh, of the US but um, there was there was there was a year and a half between the moment when indeed uh, not at the US's uh, initiative but certainly with the US welcoming it we went we invoked article 5 for the first time in its history September of course 2001 but it was only in 2003 that NATO as such mm -hmm. took on a mission in Afghanistan and the mission was not counterterrorism the mission was simply to provide continuity of headquarters for the international security and assistance force uh, a UN force so long way of saying um, if you revisit this uh, you need to look at the, the the whole process and I think as Baiba said it would be very important to have a lessons learned process that is neither a blame game nor a whitewash mm -hmm. because otherwise it would be very detrimental then, in terms of the, the, the more specific question, questions, on, um, on how we could have made better choices. So, no, not which ones would have been better, at what point, but how we could have made them. I think here that there is a shared responsibility uh, in, in not having used uh, uh, NATO uh, for what it should be, which is a place where we can openly uh, put the questions, even the hard questions, especially the hard questions uh, on the table, and not uh, be satisfied with uh, insufficient answers to the hard questions. And I say, say shared because indeed it was a surprise to nobody that the United States was, you know, that there was the August 31st uh, deadline. But the truth is that in terms of assessing the reality of the Afghan political, uh, the sustainability of the Afghan political system after this withdrawal, the reality of uh, the Afghan security forces strength. Um, there was there was one vision which I don't which we know was was not accurate. Um, we made on a national basis the assessment uh, early in the year that uh, we would not be able to ensure the security of the French community nor of those Afghans which depended on us uh, for their security and whom we had a debt to uh, beyond uh, the month of July. And we started our evacuation effort uh, in May. The last, what was supposed to be the last flight out was, was in July. Uh, uh, we, of course, then came back in through solidarity, mainly with our other partners, mainly with the Afghans, uh, close to close to 2,800 of the 3,000 people we, were, we evacuated were not French. So it's not a question of, of solidarity, but it is a question of acting on the conclusions that, that, that you draw, although, of course, we did not imagine that it would be so sudden. So I think in other theaters, we, we do need to do a, make a, a better job. And um, in terms of the, the better job of uh, living up to the motto, which is in the council room, and I've sat through many of the discussions on Afghanistan where I looked at that motto and thought that there was a, a, a disconnect. And it's not always in the council room. It can, always be, can also be bilaterally, uh, of, of course. Then just to come back very quickly to your question on crisis management and, and training. I think the question on, on training and training and, and equipping partner forces is a key one. It's also a key one uh, for the European Union, where the bulk of its crisis management operations have to do with, with partner training. I think what Afghanistan has shown is that the center of gravity of the effort and its success or failure is not about how much equipment, how much money, the quality of the training. It's about what 
the Estonian president last, last night called the, the, the posture, the moral posture, the, the fact that the people you are helping know what they are fighting for. Because the Taliban knew what they were fighting for uh, and fought to the very end. And therefore, it's, it's extremely important to also focus on the political conditions that are there. And this is what we see in, in, in Sahel as well. Finally, on crisis management, I, I hope that we will not see uh, a shift of the pendulum from crisis management back to collective defense in the same way that in 2001 we saw it go from, uh, or, or uh, you know, the, 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 in the other way around. Because the two are, are large, I mean, they're different concepts, but they're largely inseparable strategically and politically. Mm -hmm. They're largely inseparable in terms of the kinds of capabilities. And I would say that crisis management is a way of forward collective defense. So if collective defense is reduced to exclusively uh, defending your territory from within your territory, then I think uh, that that would be a, a deep mistake. Thank you, Philippe. I'm a little surprised, actually, because I think we had long shifted from crisis management to territorial defense after 2014 and put a lot more emphasis on territorial defense. But maybe I am um, mistaken here. Um, General, um, what is your basic takeaway from a Polish perspective looking at the Afghan mission, um, the end of it, um, American reliability, and yeah, do you, I mean, I was asked by, by a journalist whether there was any comparison uh, like Afghanistan, Taiwan, and then uh, maybe even NATO Article 5, and I, uh, I said there is none, but maybe, uh, I mean, do you agree with me or, or don't you? So it's very, very interesting. Uh, we're sitting in Tallinn in the eastern flank. And talking about NATO, um, mostly we're discussing about Afghanistan, even Taiwan, which is, which is interesting. <laughs> so we have a really global approach. But the, the first thing I would like to uh, emphasize is what, what, what happened, what changed, I mean, Afghanistan for Pol Polish army. Everything, absolutely everything. Poland made a very uh, strategical, important two decisions the last three decades. I don't want to uh, talk as a politician. I, I'm just telling you, as a, as a citizen of Poland, there was a uh, joining European Union and NATO, and we, it changed everything. Prosperity, you know, economy, development, money in the, uh, in the security, significant change. So then we realized that we are obliged to go somewhere to defend, to be a part of uh, the, the big architecture of uh, security. That was the time I found out myself in Iraq and Afghanistan. So definitely it was a huge change for, uh, for Poland uh, and also, I would like to, to remind you that those days, the 70 years old institution, that the line between NATO and Warsaw Pact, line between the Soviet Union and US troops mostly, I mean, NATO was 100 kilometers from here. It was a completely different world, completely different. So Tallinn was in a different, in different space, different galactic. And, um, but also, I would like to say it's over. Holidays are over. So it's only uh, interesting sometimes, emotional you know, memories, but this, this world is over. We have to spend much more money for security, invest a lot, because this is a completely different world today. And uh, the, my biggest concern right now is how to describe, because we, we could used to uh, use the terms like a bipolar word, which was easy, black and white, zero, one. Soviet Union and NATO. There was no confrontation of economy. There was no confrontation of, uh, of uh, even ideology. Uh, there was no confrontation of uh, economy. There was just only purely military confrontation, including uh, nuclear assets. 
And then everything is changed completely. So uh, we had the second in the history of mankind living in a unipolar world led by US. It was a holiday time, really. So US uh, was responsible for everything, providing security also. And we get used to, and there's a, there's a need to ask ourselves, how about us? How much money or investments we would like to spend? Not only asking for somebody else. And there's a question because as a military, and we have at least three generals here, two active duty, John uh, Harum, the uh, chief of Tennessee Estonian, unfortunately me and, and Ben Hodges somewhere in the back as, a, as a retired. And uh, so uh, the, the, the question is about the NATO, because the first point, the first challenge in the strategy of NATO is Russia, full stop. So do we, do we uh, have, you know, need to change the point one and talk about the China, talk about Afghanistan, talk about Taiwan or anything else? And then, you know, uh, use the military assets uh, for solving the problems or you expecting some military advice, but it is not the proper order so can, in can democratic I, system. Can I stay with this uh, argument for a while? Because um, when you started, and now again you said, yeah, we talk about Afghanistan and the Indo-Pacific, but we are sitting here in Tallinn, and shouldn't it be about Russia and about the Russian threat? So my question to you is, are you afraid that with all these talks also about climate change, uh, about new technologies, um, do you think that NATO got distracted? And do you think that there is a widespread perception that basically we are done um, on the eastern flank, we have done so much after 2014, and so this is fixed, we just need to basically hold the line? I think it is it's a matter of timing. You know, in the, in the big strategical perspective, climate change matters because, you know, effects will be soon like, um, you know, food issues, water, Africa, and so on. But uh, <clears throat> I really like yesterday in the backstage, there was a, there was a, there was a house on fire. And there was a saying, uh, one of the materials I got is, if, you, if your neighbor's house is in fire, you have to take care. So there's a question, we're thinking about the climate change and something in the other side of a hill, or we're thinking about you know, the fire, because we see the fire. So from Easter flank, from Polish perspective, Warsaw, and also from Italian perspective, we see the fire. So it's a matter of timing. So one day we should discuss about the you know, uh, mm -hmm. what's going on in the future in five or 10 years, which is extremely difficult to describe because we're living in a compression of time, bombardment of uh, info, you know, uh, cognitive, you know, uh, managing and all of the interesting terms that I'm reading every day. And at the same time, we have to solve the problems of today because if you're thinking only about the climate change and you know how to solve the problem that your neighbor's house is in fire, it is not, you know, it is not a good approach from the military perspective. Thank you very much. Maybe that is one of the rare occasions where a Polish and a French uh, representative <laughs> agree. So let's not focus too much on China within NATO. Um, Philippe, um, coming to you, there was um, this press statement from President Macron right after um, the, the NATO summit in June, um, where Macron said something like, um, NATO, oh, I have the quote here, like NATO uh, is an organization that concerns the North Atlantic. China has little to do with the North Atlantic and we shouldn't confuse our goals, more or less. That's what he said. So what, listening to what the general said, do you think that we run into um, a problem here that we focus too much on all sorts of things and that we now get distracted? Uh, 
focusing on China too much? So I do think that NATO should focus, any organization should focus on what are the most salient challenges and threats, and in terms of action, those where it has the strongest value added. Uh, so if we reduce the discussion to NATO, I do think, as I said, that uh, China as a direct military threat to the Euro-Atlantic area, uh, if this is the prism under which we look at it, we're missing a big part of the picture. We do need to, to have that awareness. Uh, China is beginning to operate conventionally uh, in our vicinity. There's the issue of Chinese-Russian military cooperation, including in our vicinity. But the key issue for us uh, as Americans, as Europeans, as Canadians is, is, is at least in the Euro-Atlantic area, the way in which China uses other tools, whether it's economic coercion, whether it's attempts to divide us, whether it's attempts to undermine our solidarity, our, our, our cohesion, uh, by calling into question our solidarity, look at the way it's acting with, with, with Lithuania, and our, the strongest reaction, the strongest way to react, and the most effective way to react, has not been through NATO. It has been through EU solidarity with Lithuania, uh, for example, in economic terms. And in terms of the, the issues, the, the, the domains, if you wish, uh, if you look at commerce and technology, we have an EU-US uh, dialogue on commerce and technology. It was a US proposal. Uh, this does not mean that the US cares less about NATO. It means that it knows and sees the EU's natural competencies in this, in, in this domain. Mm -hmm. So I do not think that China should be at the forefront of of what NATO is doing, or that NATO should be at the forefront of our response uh, to, 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 to Chinese uh, actions, I do think that we need to work together, uh, whether this is EU-US, EU-NATO, uh, within NATO where it's the most relevant, and within the EU. Because what we have been doing over the last year, year and a half, uh, I think has been extremely uh, uh, illustrative of what we are able to do at 27, even when we have divisions among member states, whether it be in terms of responding to Chinese uh, vaccine uh, or, or COVID diplomacy, and diplomacy is a polite word in terms of the way they, they, they put it, uh, in terms of responding together to, to human rights violations, in terms of dealing with some of the, the issues uh, like, like 5G or, or, or others, and looking forward, integrating all of this into an EU Indo-Pacific strategy that of course has to do with China, but that has to do even more with all of our partnerships in the region and with everything that the EU can offer as an alternative in terms of connectivity and other elements. So I think it would be a great mistake to put this in terms of the EU versus NATO. Uh, I think it's much more what, what we see and more importantly what we do uh, as Europeans, Americans and, and Canadians regardless of the institution. Thank you. I see uh, Baiba nodding, but first I want to go to JJ because I think a lot of Europeans these days try to figure out what the United States really want from Europe within NATO. I've heard um, a Spanish official speculating that basically the United States want um, NATO to become an alliance also focused on the Indo-Pacific. So if you, I mean, all Europeans here in the room and you would need to advise us, do you think that there is really an expectation in Washington that Europeans and then also NATO should be more engaged and not only sending frigates like the Germans, the Bayern, but like one, but just really engaged in the region. Do you think there is this expectation even? Well, yes and no. But to get to your point, the question, yeah, yes, Washington recognizes that it has a pretty big lift right now as far as that goes. There is this expectation that the EU European countries have a larger, much larger role to play. If I hear what you're asking me, you know, if I read between the lines, is the U.S. 
isolating itself to some degree. That's, I don't what, that's what actually many Europeans fear. Many I, Europeans fear there is some sort of workshare emerging. The US focuses right. on China. The Europeans, yeah. if they don't so, like, focus. Yeah, no. It, and that there is some sort of decoupling emerging. There could be some dark, sinister plan to do that that none of us know about. Um, and, and that wouldn't be unheard of. But I don't think that that's what's at play here. And I'll just be very brief with this. I think what's happening is we've heard the word distraction a bunch of times this morning. And a part of what the distraction is, is disinformation and misinformation, and it's deliberate. And one of the real problems in America is not understanding that that's what's happening. Uh, you know, the echo chamber that we got that led to January 6th, some other things that took place in the run-up to January 6th were all a part of this changing of the ground rules in America. People didn't realize disinformation was a part of that process. And so I think the U.S. is not trying to pull back. I think it's actually trying to stand up on its skates again and get steady you know, before it starts doing anything significant worldwide. Because as Mr. Biden said before he was elected, because I was in Munich when he made that statement at the conference about America coming back, et cetera, and blah, blah, blah. I think that's what he's trying to do. But there is a lot of stuff to clean up before he gets there. He's not there. With Afghanistan happening, that delayed that process. There's also this question about now, uh, can we trust the Americans with you know, the, the consultation bit? There are just so many things that have been happening. Distractions have done uh, a major job in confusing and muddling it. The cause of that distraction, I don't think, is getting enough attention. And I think that's a part of the reason why folks think America may want to isolate itself. But I don't really get that from talking to the folks that I've spoken to. I think that is very reassuring uh, for the Europeans in the room. Baiba, if you look at the discussions that you followed in NATO on China, but also on Russia, do you think that NATO got the balance right uh, in June? And that, um, because I think like Russia was mentioned more than 60 times and China much less so. So do you think um, that we are on the right track? And maybe also, like Philippe brought this up two times, this cooperation between China and Russia. Is that very much uh, on NATO's agenda as well? On the communique and the language and communique, I think it really fairly reflects, again, you know, what allies have come to, to regard as a common threat and also so-called emerging challenges assessment. And it's no surprise that China is, is indeed there in a much stronger ways than it was in London communique. And uh, it doesn't mean that, you know, there are practical sort of operational deterrence plans, but what it means is actually that the readiness, the thinking about it, the understanding of these threats and challenges has to be there. So, and this is where where NATO's sort of relevance and value comes in, that we have to be able, again, through sharing the information, intelligence, the understanding of each other, what is relevant to all 30 allies, to be able to be ready for all threats and challenges, from nuclear deterrence to cyber and hybrid, and at different levels. 
and there will be different respo responses to different challenges. So the Allies recently called out China through the Microsoft uh, incident. Uh, it was the first statement of, of such kind on a, on, a, on a cyber attack. So we are changing because the Allies are changing. NATO is changing. We are getting, again, through the new strategic concept, through this discussion, through this free consultation, both on the military and civilian side of the houses, there will be uh, a commonality of the 30 to understand uh, what are the next steps. And I don't want to prejudge it. There is a discussion ongoing, but, but again, you know, uh, we can't prejudge it. The, uh, the real issue is, of course, it's about our societies. As JJ said, uh, we know that both from the challenges during the COVID through the way the fragmentations, the bubbles, the, the uh, uh, sort of use of data uh, was there by actors, malign actors, but also not so malign actors, just using the opportunities that the data is cheap, you can buy it, you can influence it, you know, you can influence groups, you can micro-target groups, that uh, it provides such opportunities also for malign actors to, to undermine our societies that it's actually for us, for the allies and for other democratic states based on the same values, democratic values and, and the uh, sort of liberal orders that we are to understand on what rules uh, do we function, how do we respond. If the regulation is not enough, do we need more regulation? It's very difficult. Whatever regulation comes, it's too late already. So that's why the resilience, the enhanced societal resilience concept where essentially we think about sort of blockchain societies where there are nodes of groups of families of friends that actually understand and are able to, to sort of at all levels to choose the right response, whether, you know, from the uh, smartphone to ending with the private sector and, and creating the right procedures of of cyber hygiene and the rest. So it's a different type of uh, realities that we are faced. The hybrid threats, be it cyber or disinformation, don't respect borders. There is no, you know, tank with a sign, you know, a cyber attack coming to us. It's just, you know, it's just there. And it undermines the very political essence of the consultation for us, you know, within NATO to identify, to understand and to respond. So the, the sort of, as more knowledge and ability to respond at the basis of the pyramid of the society of all allies, and not only allies, here's where the partners come in, be it democracies all around the world. As better we understand, as better we share the information intelligence and, and are able to respond, especially on the what works, how to impose the cost, is, is the most efficient, I would say. So you, you got me going I, I, there. <laughs> I come to the audience immediately, but just before you think of your questions, you did not answer my question on China and <laughs> Russia cooperating and a possible threat scenario, joint exercises near Europe. Is that something that worries NATO? Um, let's say we are looking at it, and there are various angles to look at it, and uh, there are certain things that are greatly exaggerated, mm -hmm. and there are th certain sort of points that are used for very much the situational use of one or the other country. So, you know, I will, I will keep it at that. So, I already have so many hands. We collect, I guess, four and keep your questions um, precise. I have to start with uh, Linas uh, Linkevicius <laughs> over there. 
thanks a lot. Uh, on this pullout from Afghanistan, the very fact it's uh, understandable and it should happen somehow, but the way it was done probably difficult to call as a success and would be a big mistake now to deny that, by the way. But it's also what is, uh, concerns me, also, also t temptation to isolate from Americans and to, to act autonomously. Again, these voices coming up. And um, yesterday, the uh, Vice President of Commission, Shinas, tried to advertise strategic autonomy. Mm -hmm. uh, in my view, it was not very convincing. Um, also, there are some other initiatives, and I believe, especially now, we have to take this challenge together. We shouldn't allow to split alliance to make it, you know, even more problematic. We have to address jointly and as a lessons and really look forward and craft all these initiatives on both sides of the ocean very carefully and have in mind some ideas of European army, which were discussed before. Few knows what that means, by, by the way or strategic autonomy uh, again. So uh, if, if it's, even if it says that it's nothing to do with isolation, but it smells like isolation, which is also dangerous, I believe. It should be really a different way. So uh, my question will be maybe to Philippe, maybe you can try <laughs> to justify this, this uh, uh, idea of strategic autonomy in particular. And Baiba, if you can tell something how it was discussed in NATO, if it's discussed, and what could be the opinion. Others also welcome if they will be willing to to, to comment. Thank you. I think you can give the mic to the lady next to you. Yeah. And I think there is no greater pleasure for a French diplomat than to explain strategic autonomy and why we all get it wrong. So looking forward to this. Yeah, I, 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 take, um, I take a couple of questions and then uh, I come back to you. Please. Thank you so much. My name is Lola Tisigan. I'm from Riga, Latvia. I would like to ask the panelists to go a bit deeper into the regional migration crisis that we are having on Lithuania, Belarus, and Latvia-Belarus border. Philippe uh, mentioned uh, that the European Union has stepped in, but isn't there really an Article 5 dimension too uh, that we should anal analyze in this respect? Thank you. Mr. Ilves here, and then. Yeah, I come to you, and then I give it back to the panel for quick answers. Yes, 20 years ago when I was foreign minister, my all-consuming task was to join NATO for Estonia uh, because of the regional security aspects of it. Since 2007, I think it should be quite clear that the age of kinetic warfare is considerably diminished in geography. Um, as in North Atlantic Treaty Organization, the raison d'etre for that is not anything other than tank logistics, ra bomber range, f fighter fueling. War today, attacks today, there is no distance, there is no time for all this. It's a purpose on Earth, at least. Point is that the, what the, the response of both the European Union and NATO to digital mm -hmm. threats is woefully inadequate. Uh, I mean, having a center of excellence in Riga and Tallinn for Stratcom and Cyber is nice, but that is not an adequate response to the kinds of threats we face today. Uh, and I would say the same thing is true of the European Union, alas, which I don't understand why they don't f focus more on the digital side, because PESCO, I mean, that, I mean we, we don't need arguments about uh, tank, you know, so whose tanks are these. EU is ideally suited for dealing in a big way with security 
on the digital side or the, the non-kinetic aspect of it. Both of them are, as I said, woefully inadequate and are there plans to actually do something serious in this regard because China is not a distant neighbor as long when we are in the digital world. They're right here. I think that's a question to you, Baiba, and then, and last, Sabine Fischer, and then we do a second and a third and hopefully also a fourth round. Over there. Well, yeah? where's Sabina? Uh, Sabina is two rows uh, behind you. Yeah, of so course. Because I'm not Sabina Fischer. But. <laughs> <laughs> there is only one Sabina Fischer. She's one of the leading Russia experts in Germany. <laughs> I'm not so sure about that, but okay. Yeah, Sabine Fischer from the German Institute for International and Security Affairs in Berlin. And indeed, I'm one of the Russia watchers in this wonderful crowd. And so I'll ask a Russia question with regard to Afghanistan, because obviously, um, what is happening there now is watched very closely from Moscow, and there's a lot of triumphalism, as we know, in postering. But if you scratch the surface a little bit, you will see that there's a lot of concern as well about the security risks that are emanating from the situation in Afghanistan for the Central Asian allies of Russia, but also for Russia itself. So my question is, do you see any space, any possibility to communicate about this with Russia against the background of what was just discussed on the panel about Russia being an imminent threat to NATO, actually. So any possibility to communicate, even cooperate with Russia about this situation, or is the gap between the sides too deep for this to happen? Thank you. Okay, so we have strategic autonomy and European isolationism, the regional migration crisis um, as means of hybrid warfare, Article 5, digital um, aspects, um, us being inadequately equipped and the possibility for cooperation with Russia. Um, and I ask you to be maybe very short. So you have seen there are 50 people who want to come in. Philippe, maybe you start. So on strategic autonomy, I think, Linus, that we can disagree on the words. Um, that makes uh, diplomats' business uh, interesting and challenging. What's most important is that we agree on what we do. And when I look at what Europeans, uh, I'm not saying NATO, EU, what I'm looking at what Europeans do in terms of taking on greater defense responsibilities, in terms of greater capabilities, in terms of intervening in the higher end of the spectrum further from Europe. If you look at the task force Takuba and the Sahel, what we are doing is uh, taking on more responsibility, and luckily so, uh, in areas that de facto, and this doesn't say anything about uh, the end of NATO, about uh, US isolationism, about uh, Europe pushing away uh, the US, that de facto uh, the US says it's important, but it's not that important to us. We're very happy to support, and they give key support, but we don't want to be in the lead. And I think the more we're able to do this, the more we're able to do it in NATO, in the EU, in ad hoc formats, just among Europeans with US support, or among Europeans with the US, then the more we will both make the alliance in the sort of, the, I mean, the, an alliance, a transatlantic alliance, vibrant and sustainable, including in the US uh, uh, domestic politics and, and body politic, and the more we will be able to not be taken by surprise when there's something happening in our neighborhood to the south or, or in the Middle East where the US simply does not want to want to intervene because we cannot be dependent on this. And I think this is, this is not, um, it should not be divisive. It isn't in practice. So if it is in theory, it's not that bad. <laughs> 
On uh, cooperation with the EU, uh, I haven't seen a closer cooperation with the EU than NATO has had than now. It's literally everyday exchange of information and in my sphere also on digital, on, on countering disinformation, on, on everything that is there. Uh, NATO has adopted its own artificial intelligence strategy. We're discussing data exploitation. There is a whole sort of set of work uh, that is ongoing both on the political and uh, civilian and military sides of the house. And we work with EU on an everyday basis. So in that respect, uh, the, the channels of communication, but also externally with the external action service, you know, with regard to third countries, what uh, Chinese disinformation or misinformation operations are, what Russians are doing, and so on and so forth. So in, that is all happening. It's not everything is public, uh, obviously, on substance. On, on military capabilities, there is, as we know, for the 30 allies, there is usually one set of capabilities. And of course, uh, when we look at the numbers, it's pretty clear that 70% uh, of, of uh, GDP in NATO is from non-NATO allies, and 80% of defense spending within NATO comes from non-EU uh, non allies. So that's just to put things in perspective where the capabilities really are. Having said that, the defense spending has risen. Uh, the, the investment in research and development has risen across, across the alliance. So we are moving in the right way also in terms of, of these harder capabilities, but also in terms of digital, as Thomas was saying. Um, so I don't know what is adequate or inadequate. I think we all can have personal opinions. But uh, having been in the alliance now uh, for, for one and a half years, I can say that we have advanced from where we were when I arrived to now, and it's not because of me, sorry, but it's just there. And that's because allies, all 30, have really made huge jumps. And I think it has been due to the COVID, the, the whole digital proximity of, of reality or what it means for our democracies has, uh, and for our private sector has really increased uh, that will to cooperate. But also on countering hybrid as such, the whole sort of hybrid response options uh, that we have is in NATO, and we're again with the EU, we are just the most natural partners. It's, it's, uh, it's all there, there's, you know, it's, yeah. Uh, That's very I abstract. Don't want, I don't want to uh, say, you know, uh, counter uh, that uh, strategic autonomy is a choice of words and what is the meaning, we can again insert something else, but the reality is we work very closely together. But coming back to the hybrid warfare question, if I may call it um, as such, do you think that particular case uh, is uh, a case for NATO? Uh, NATO has just deployed the counter-hybrid support team to Lithuania, uh, actually. So, you know, there was a very quick decision by 30 allies. It was literally, you know, short discussion and it was done. So, uh, again, it will be a very practical, uh, practical work done on the ground in Lithuania. It's not discussed within the Article 5 notion. That is not done uh, because there hasn't been request for anything like that. But it's just the early response options that Lithuania has asked for. So, Thank you. General, maybe you are the least possible person who would advocate for cooperating with Russia, um, I would assume. Um, but not, coming not back only be, to... Not only because I'm a general, but also because I'm Polish. <laughs> Russia and Afghanistan. But, but coming back to the question on... Russia and Afghanistan, more precisely, isn't there a rationale behind what uh, Sabine Fischer has said? Is there room for cooperation? Because we join, act, uh, we, we share actually an interest. 
as a, as a human being, I would say just just to discuss is always nice. So there's not a problem uh, just to discuss with a question about our will and our agenda, of course. I think uh, right now in Afghanistan, what we observe is Russia trying to uh, to put some footprint and, and looking for some uh, place of opportunity. So the Russian embassy is still working. And in the very short term, uh, they playing a game that it's, it's success uh, because they're still staying and, uh, and they're pretending to influence the situation. And also, which is interesting linkage, that's my private perspective, is a, is a situation in Afghanistan, and then we have a immigration, illegal immigration, with some kind of a aeroflot airplane support, flying those poor people, transporting to Belarus, and then finally to Lithuania, Latvia, and the Polish border, ends up at exercise. So, but in the long term, Russians, they know very well that it's a huge challenge and problem for Russia, because the, if the situation in Afghanistan is destabilized, those people, uh, on, uh, on the road going to the uh, you know, certain uh, boundaries of Russia. So it's very short-term uh, success or success-like event they try to explore, but in the long term, there will be a huge problem. So that would be a reason from some certain identities like NATO or European Union or coalitions to, to talk and to discuss, but uh, direct discussion, to be honest, between Poland and Russia in such a case, it will be will be uh, extremely challenging. That's the most uh, the diplomatic word I would use. <laughs> Thank you very much, JJ. Very quickly, I have a lot of yeah, people I waiting. Just wanted, I just wanted to say that um, this is what I was getting at earlier when I said Afghanistan changes everything. Because I think Russia, according to several sources that I've been speaking to since this whole thing was unfolding, expected the US to the plan to work equip them, they stand up, do what they need to do, and Russia continued to try to tear down, play the role of spoiler in the background, while the US and NATO did the hard, dirty work. They didn't expect what took place to take place. Now Russia recognizes it too is threatened. So now they, they're not sure how to handle this. So there may be room for a discussion. Where it goes, I don't know. But I, do, I don't think that Russia's looking at this, based on the folks that I've spoken to, the same way they were looking at it before everything just broke down in Afghanistan. Okay. I now go to Konstantin and Sven. Second, second row to my left. Yeah. Uh, yes, thank you very much, Konstantin. I get to have a very brief uh, journalistic question to every participant, every panelist. And uh, it is quite simple. After the uh, Afghanistan debacle that we've seen in the last few weeks, whether it's a real or perceived PR debacle, we're not discussing that now. Uh, is the American leadership of NATO, uh, is it weakened? Thank you. Sven. Thank you. Uh, Sven Zakkov, I am Ambassador of Estonia to Finland. Um, my question is um, in the same direction as uh, Elina Slinkiewicz's one in, um, in the previous uh, panel, or previous round. And, um, and uh, really, uh, Philippe, I heard what you say that we should not charge the last 20 years according to what happened in the last 20 days. Uh, you know, there's a problem with argumentation uh, when you follow football, for example. Uh, you can have a very good 88 minutes. Um, 
And, but if the two are really bad, then the final score is not the one what you wished for. Uh, now, the, if, if we've summarized the collective worries what we have about the, the nature of a withdrawal uh, from Afghanistan, I think it's threefold. Uh, how it affects US self-confidence you know, to engage in the world. Secondly, how it affects allies, friends of the United States. In Europe, I think the worry in this part of Europe is that there, is, there are renewed called, calls, and we already heard them, for uh, European strategic autonomy, uh, European sovereignty, but the calls will remain inside the realm of speeches and declarations, not military spending and capabilities. And the third worry is, of course, emboldening uh, the adversaries. My question to the panelists is, what needs to be done in order to remedy those three points? <laughs> Thank you, making it a very big question. The lady next to Sergei Utkin and then Sergei Utkin. <laughs> Thank you, Yulia Nikitin, Namgimo University of Russia. Uh, so I have a question about uh, NATO's evolution in the future. Uh, so if we look uh, at the picture chosen by the organizers to illustrate this panel, I wonder, is it the US on the right side making a sophisticated jump and hoping for support for, from uh, European allies? Uh, so th th that's what we have discussed uh, in this panel. But if you had to give your personal perspective on uh, NATO uh, in the future, so it used to be a military bloc, now it's political organization. What will it be in the future? What should it be in the future? A family, as JJ said, or global police, or something else? Uh, very brief uh, definition, just a couple of words from each of the panelists. Thank you. Thank you. I think we leave that to the, as a very last question. So that will be kind of your concluding sentence to finish the sentence, what will NATO be in the future? We part this. Sergey. My question actually rhymes with the question of Yula, but on a more concrete level, um, uh, Philippe Rajas mentioned the French involvement in Sahel and uh, the French responsibility there, but it looks like that uh, the French operation, uh, uh, the Barkhane, uh, it is also heading towards a defeat uh, by the end of this year. Um, so um, most people say that Africa is not NATO business, uh, but is it like forever to remain this way? Uh, my question on that is twofold. First, to uh, Philip Arora, did you feel like you uh, uh, didn't have uh, sufficient support from the Allies or maybe NATO mechanisms assets that you could have used and that could have made the operation more successful? Did you feel this uh, uh, gap uh, that that wasn't the NATO mission there? And to uh, Baiba Braza, uh, whether uh, you do at all have any discussion on Africa in NATO? Uh, is it like the discussion is there but there is no consensus or there is no discussion? At all. Thank you. I take one more. I would love to take a woman, actually. Yeah. <laughs> to have kind of some sort of gender balance. There is no woman, so ton pis, um, gentleman in the third row. Thank you. First of all, I want uh, to say thank you to General Andrzej Chak for uh, this. Yeah. Uh, Could you introduce yourself first? Anton Drobovich, head of Ukrainian Institute of National Remembrance, about this uh, vision uh, in East Europe, because fire in our home, in Ukraine, in Georgia, in Belarus, and we have smoke in the Lithuania. Uh, my question uh, to uh, Baiba and uh, to JJ. When we look into the stories about Afghanistan, uh, get the impression that uh, different countries uh, are coming out from Afghanistan, not coalition. Is this uh, 
random media effect or our East European vision, uh, lack of communication or some new challenge of coordination in NATO. Thank you. Okay. Do you want to um, answer or shall I take one more? Uh, Do you think you can deal with one more question? Yeah. So, still no lady, sorry ladies. Where are the women? <laughs> over the gentleman over there. And then Carsten, I come to you and then I think. Uh, hello, I'm Shota Guineria uh, from Baltic Defense College and DPRC Georgia. I, listening to this panel, I conceived this crazy question about the open door policy of NATO. <laughs> you know, nobody mentioned it. ASG mentioned sort of cooperative security as the uh, as the uh, th one of the three uh, main pillars of NATO. But what about the open door policy? Because when Biden was elected. Different nations had different hopes and expectations. And in Georgia and in Ukraine, we definitely had some expectations that our Euro integration process somehow could move forward with the new administration. But now with everything happening and with all these fires around us, is, is open door policy still a policy or it's a myth actually? Thank you very so. much. And Carsten Fries, first row. Thank you, and thank you, Jana, for letting me speak. <laughs> um, we discussed last night, JJ, uh, and you said Afghanistan changes everything. I will pose to you, Afghanistan changes nothing. It's a bump in the road for NATO. That's the argument I gave last night, so I'll share it with you now. For two reasons. Um, uh, politically, we're all, to be a bit cynical, fed up. We want to get, get out of there, therefore there will not be enough to play, because we don't you know, we don't want to deal with this. Secondly, militarily, NATO has been focused on collective defense since 2014. That's what we do. And that brings me to my question. These three core tasks of, of, of NATO, they seem equal on paper, but in reality what NATO does is military planning on collective defense. All the strategies that have been made in, the, in, in recent years in shape has been about collective defense. So should we rethink how we phrase these three core tasks, especially the two other ones in that context? Thank you. So now uh, you have a difficult choices. You have to choose which question uh, you answer. But JJ, you definitely need to answer the question on American leadership being weaker after Afghanistan. What was that question, actually? I, I think <laughs> the question was whether after Afghanistan, the takeaway, whether American leadership was weakened um, in NATO, ah. but maybe also globally. Yes and no. <laughs> In the moment, it was. But as all of you know, what happens in the moment does not mean that it's etched in history. There's the possibility of recapacitating. There is such a thing, Sven mentioned the football metaphor. There is such a thing as an equalizer. Where that comes, how it comes, I don't know. But I don't think that anybody's just going to say, forget it, we lost it, all hope is gone. American leadership is destroyed, or, you know, this, is, this was a setback, no doubt. But there were some shining moments, and I think that when the American leadership gets a chance, the opportunity will present itself to reassert itself and reestablish that it can lead. But I think what they really want to do right now is to lead together with NATO and the rest of the world that is aligned ideolo ideologically with the U.S. Thank you. General. I was Plenty of very interesting uh, the questions, but I would like to touch uh, some of, some of them. First was about Article Five and the situation on the border. Some of the ladies you mentioned was interest, very interesting. Let's let's stop for a while and imagine the situation. You have a 40 million country with a 100,000 army, 
100,000 police and 30 immigrants in the border, Polish, uh, you know, Belarusian border, and we would like to introduce Article, Article 5. It's crazy. But in the same time, in the same time, we're living in a completely different dimension. Uh, I spent a couple of days uh, talking to my, my political leadership, my, my bosses, about the situation. So we, we fully control it physically, operationally, we control the situation. But of course, a lot of challenges right now, but we're controlling. But we're losing perception of battle. So the question about the Zapad exercise is very interesting for you. I don't want to, you know, I, I don't waiting for the answer, but let's ask, ask our, ourselves right now. Somebody says the Zapad exercise is in a hot uh, phase right now because the immigration from Afghanistan through the Belarus, making unrest and using hybrid-like scenario is probably the first phase of exercise uh, Zapad. And uh, the active phase will be in a couple of days. Or maybe the Zapad is over because the Russians, they achieved their obje strategical objectives. They're criticizing, you know, Americans and NATO and entire discussion today is about we are not effective enough. So it's a matter of the, the measurement. What's, what's the measurement of victory in Afghanistan? That was the, also in the previous panel, very interesting. Is it the, our flag in the, in the Iwo Jima somewhere, or is it just the conditions we're building? So probably our vocabulary, we, we have to calibrate a little bit. And I don't think this Article 5 will be, uh, will be uh, good enough. Maybe we'll feel better, but we still have enough assets, not necessarily military ones. And also very interesting, uh, the comments about the, the end of age of kinetic warfare. Mm -hmm. Well, sir, uh, it's painful for me because I'm armor. I spend most of my time in armor. <laughs> but I have to agree that absolutely the, um, the proportions comparing the uh, you know, kinetic assets and also facing to the problems and the crisis as we use today probably are not uh, you know, fit enough. And uh, in the digital thread, which is, uh, I, I, like, I like it very much, the, the space and time. So it means we're living in a different dimension of space because uh, China somehow is not in the other side of the globe. Most of you, you have a Huawei telephones right now on. So uh, China is here. China is not in, in the other side of the globe. So uh, the calibrating uh, the terms and vocabulary will be very important. If not, the, our discussion will, will have uh, the different you know, conclusions. <laughs> bye bye. On the US leadership of NATO, if it's weakened, um, Again, uh, you know, when President Trump was in the office, you know, everybody thought it's the end of NATO. Now everybody again says there's a new crisis. But actually what you see in reality is that the U.S. has never consulted as much. There is a, you know, at all levels, be it at experts level, on, on nuclear posture review, on, on presidential level, defense secretary, and so on and so forth, you know, both defense and foreign secretaries were there. So it's just, it's like an everyday relationship. So. I wouldn't say it's weakened. And, and as you heard, there are different perspectives to look at Afghanistan. But one thing is clear, we have to learn, or at least try to learn those lessons, you know, because scenarios were there. So which ones did the allies choose? And to, to, to say about the evacuations, that it looked that the countries were, were running the operations. Actually, NATO was coordinating the evacuations, especially for those allies that didn't have uh, uh, embassies on the ground. So it was NATO that was literally getting the information on the evacuees, on the nationals, on the Afghans, uh, uh, exchanging it, exchanging it with our uh, operations cell 
in NATO and, and pulling that information together. It was really 24-7 work for several weeks and it was, it was I think, I think uh, we did what we could uh, and we do expect the, to, the airport to stay open and there are still people that we would like to get out and we will work towards that. But it was, it was NATO coordinating it largely. And the Allies were great, really. Uh, the, the military stepped up uh, and, and as Philip said, some were readier, some were less ready, but uh, the work was being done. Then on the, on the future, uh, NATO statute provides it's, it's a political military alliance. It is a political military alliance. The work that we are doing is very much around situational awareness. And, and understanding, increasing the understanding and readiness. So the investment that is put uh, both in tech within NATO, uh, be it on the military or civilian side, to increase that awareness, uh, to have the information environment, to in the indicators and warnings uh, there, to have to understand them, uh, and then how to interpret them to have the right political and military decisions and the military advice uh, on which we can base political decision. It's, it's all happening as we speak. So in that respect, indeed, uh, the, the tech and data provides new challenges and the digital aspect of not having that warning time is both a threat but also an opportunity. So actually having learned the, the lessons from the invasion in Ukraine uh, by Russia in 2014, this April we were able to see and understand much better what was happening, what, what was there. And also we saw that Ukrainians had learned those lessons and actually, you know, speaking about the open door beat on Ukraine or Georgia or other countries, it's a decision for the 30 allies in those countries. Nothing has changed. It's the open door. And of course, the candidate countries who want to enter NATO do have to continue investing their capabilities, reforms, so that the allies at 30 can make those decisions. And it's, a, it's an ongoing process. It's just there. I'm afraid we are running out of time, no. Baiba. It's a core tasks. <laughs> strategic concept. concept. Um, it will remain. I mean, the core tasks, again, it will be fulfilled with a, a, a sort of evolving substance, again. Uh, but uh, the core tasks, uh, how we formulate them, are not going to disappear. All three of them. <laughs> Philippe. Three very quick points. First, in response to, to Sven's question, I did not say that we should that the result um, sh should be seen as only in the prism of what we did over the last 20 years. The result was a failure. And it's like at the end of the soccer match, what matters is the score. But what I was saying is that when we do carry out our lessons learned exercise, we need to think about the choices we made collectively over the last 20 years to see at what point we could and should have done things differently. And when you come to the debate on strategic autonomy, etc., I separate this from the EU issue. Of course, we are going to have a, a very ambitious EU-French presidency on issues related to security and defense, among others. But I'm struck to see even the debate within the UK in, uh, after Afghanistan, uh, where people ask themselves, do we want to be in this situation again? And if we don't, then what, what should we do in terms of relations with the US? And so I think we can and we should have this serious debate, even if it's a difficult debate, because we will come out stronger and more united. Second point, in terms of uh, the question regarding uh, Africa and NATO and trench operations in Sahel. I won't surprise you, and it's not only because I'm French, uh, it's also just because I look at, on the facts at the ground. I would not say Barkhane is a failure and this failure will be seen by the end of the year. What I am saying, and what 
the French president has, has said uh, with the partners who are on the ground with us is that it's an increasingly difficult and that it's changing in nature and that therefore the counter-terrorism dimension of it per se is taking in a sense second, uh, um, a less salient role compared to building up of partner forces, building up of, of uh, uh, state uh, sovereignty, uh, etc. And in this regard, I, I, I think that the question isn't so much why NATO as an organization is there or isn't there. We've made the collective choice not to use NATO. Um, but when we have you know, Estonian forces that were in Barkhane as early as 2018, Estonia was the first country to actually be on the ground. We had got key support from other countries logistically, et cetera, but Estonia was the first country. I think that if we were able to operate so closely with them and so efficiently, and even more so today with all of the special operations forces working in the higher end of the spectrum into Cuba, it's thanks to the interoperability we have within NATO. So it's not because NATO as an organization is not somewhere that uh, it isn't, uh, isn't providing value. So as a final exercise, finish the sentence. What will NATO be in the future? Huh. NATO will in the future be? <laughs> Here. <laughs> General? Successful. Effective. Viper? Able to respond to all threats from nuclear to hybrid. And Philippe? Uh, it will be what we decide for it to be and what we prepare ourselves as nations to be able to commit to doing together within NATO. Thank you very much. That was it from my side. Enjoy your meal. Thank you to the panelists. Coming up in our next episode, Staying in Estonia, we talk with Kusti Salm. He's the Estonian Ministry of Defense Permanent Secretary about something Belarus is doing that they don't like. To put it simply, uh, across a few months, the Belarusian regime, Lukashenko's regime, uh, have brought in um, around 4,000, probably even more, migrants um, from uh, Middle Eastern countries, and uh, they have uh, flew them in uh, to Minsk, and from Minsk they have shuffled them to uh, Belarusian border and pushed them over border. They call it weaponization of migrants, and it's not an original idea. Russia was behind something like that in 2015 on the Finnish and Norwegian borders. This is contributing to growing tensions in the region, all the more reason why they're concerned about their standing with the U.S. That's coming up in our next episode of Target USA. In the meantime, if you have any questions or comments, you want to send me an email, you can do it at jgreen at wtop.com. That's the letter J, the color green, one word, at whiskeytangooscarpapa.com. jgreen at wtop.com. Also, we encourage you to follow us on Twitter. We're at TUSA Podcast. And also, we invite you to subscribe to our podcast. And if you want more national and international security information, sign up for my newsletter. It's called Inside the Skiff. That's Inside the Skiff, and you can find it at WTOP.com slash alerts. I'm J.J. Green, and this is Target USA. The National Security Podcast. Hey guys, Jay Cutler. Started a new podcast called Uncut with Jay Cutler. Most of you know me from the NFL, some of you have seen me on Instagram, and some of you know me from the reality TV world. Each week I'm taking you along with me as we discuss football, trending topics, 
and whatever's going on in my life each week. I'm bringing along people that are special in my life. Former teammates, friends, and some new people that I like and respect. That's what you're supposed to do, right? Podcasting? I think I'm doing this right. Can't wait to get started with you. Go subscribe now. Uncut with Jay Cutler. Apple Podcasts, Podcast One, and Spotify. Or wherever you get your podcasts. Now, stay tuned for the latest headlines from the Associated Press.